Few fictional characters of our time have inspired love and devotion like Daenerys Targaryen. I think it's safe to say. That's still true even though the writers of the TV show version of the story failed the character in epic fashion by turning into a tyrannical butcher of innocent people. Only a mere two episodes after she just risked everything she had to save the Northerners and all of Westeros from the White Walkers. We're not here to dwell on the failures of the HBO show regarding Daenerys, though. You can find that analysis, well, all over the internet, quite frankly, but also on my channel in videos like Azor High the Bad Guy, Born to Burn the Others, and my entire Who's the Real Daenerys Targaryen playlist. Instead, I'm here to show you how George R.R. Martin created the most compelling character in modern fiction by drawing on the attributes and symbols of the Earth's oldest mother goddesses. And doesn't that sound like more fun? In particular, we'll be diving deep into Vedic Hindu myth, which kind of took over this mother goddess essay as I was writing it. I'm quite honestly taken aback a little bit at what George has done here, working with some of the most interesting and complex mythology ever invented by human beings, and finding brilliant ways to work it into a song of ice and fire. So I think you're gonna like it, friends. So hey there, friends and mythheads, it's Lucifer Means Lightbringer, and let me welcome you to the mythical astronomy of ice and fire, and possibly the most in-depth symbolism and mythology video that I have ever made on A Song of Ice and Fire. And I was tempted to cut it down or edit things out, but I just didn't want to, so here we have an hour video on the Vedic Hindu origins of Daenerys Targaryen and House Targaryen. I promise, you won't find this analysis anywhere else on the internet, so if you like what I'm doing, please help support the program. All the links are down below. And of course, a very heartfelt thank you to all of you who support the program, leave comments, like and share the videos. And of course, if you're new to the channel, I'll thank you right now ahead of time, oops, over here, for subscribing. Thank you very much, guys. Enjoy the video. First off, I hope the premise of this essay, the Daenerys, is a mother goddess, is surprising exactly nobody. By now, it's well known that George R. R. Martin draws heavily from real-world mythology to construct the characters and legends of A Song of Ice and Fire. And Daenerys is one of the most obviously godlike characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, along with people like Euron, Bloodraven, and, of course, Bran. Danny's role as a mother is a central part of her identity. She's both the mother of dragons and the mother to a growing nation of refugees and freed slaves. Daenerys is a natural place to look for mother goddess mythology, and it just so happens that many real-world mother goddesses are connected to dragons and sea serpents, and those are the ones that George is working with primarily. And lying beneath the idea of a mother goddess, sea serpent, or dragon is the more fundamental concept of the primordial chaos ocean of creation, the cosmic womb of all life. All of these ideas can be found in the story of Daenerys, along with many interesting and specific correlations to several mother goddesses. Like I said, we're mostly going to be talking about Vedic Hindu myth today, but first, we need to start by discussing a concept from comparative mythology called the Chaos Kampf myth, which is the widespread archetypal legend of a storm god who slays a dragon, often a multi-headed dragon, like the one on my shirt, in order to release a great flood and either create the earth or remake it. Those of you who watched my recent Chaos Mother real-world mythology livestream definitely know what I'm talking about. That's a great one to check out for a deeper background on the things that we're going to talk about today, if you're interested in that. Now, the German word Kampf means struggle, so Chaos Kampf means 
struggle against chaos. And the idea underlying these myths is that the creation and the existence of the universe can be perceived as the interaction between order and chaos, between creation and decomposition, between matter and spirit, and other such dualities. It's a struggle in the same sense that George uses the word song to describe any sort of coming together of opposites, such as the song of ice and fire, or when he uses the song of swords as a phrase to describe battle. A song is, of course, a harmonization of vocalists or musicians, whereas a battle is a struggle to kill or be killed, but both are similar in that the energy of the two things comes together and harmonizes to create a new third thing, the song or the battle or the creation of a new world or kingdom in the case of the Chaos Conf myth. Now, two Chaos Conf legends that you're probably already familiar with are from Norse and Greek myth. The Norse storm god Thor is, of course, supposed to slay the world-encircling chaos sea serpent Jormungandr during Ragnarok, which is a remaking of the world. And the Greek storm god Zeus must use all of his lightning bolts to slay the monstrous multi-headed dragon Typhon in order to cement the ascendance of the Olympian gods over the Titans. Some of you may even found those verses tucked away in the Old Testament of the Bible, which depict Yahweh, who has many attributes of a storm god, slaying the Leviathan, which seems to be a retelling of an older Canaanite myth, where the storm god Baal Hadad slays Lotan, the seven-headed water dragon. The dragon has seven heads in this case. But then there's also the Vedic Indian storm god Indra, who slays the fearsome Varitra, an Asura demon and the firstborn of dragons. And Varitra is most commonly depicted as a snake or a three-headed dragon. Varitra is actually the one we're going to talk the most about today, and not just because he has three heads. The oldest version of the Chaos Comp story is probably Marduk and Tiamat, who come from Babylonian and Sumerian mythology, with Tiamat being pretty much the prototype of a primordial chaos ocean mother goddess that can manifest as a terrifying sea dragon. And Marduk is pretty much an ubermanly warrior storm god par excellence. Marduk, with powerful incantation, harnesses the storm winds and uses them to inflate the body of Tiamat so that her mighty jaws cannot close whereupon he's able to slay her with an arrow. That being done, Marduk splits the body of the great dragon in twain like a fish and uses the two halves to fashion the heavens and the earth, with her weeping eyes becoming the sources of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and her tail becoming the Milky Way. We actually read several passages from the Enuma Elish Babylonian creation myth, which this story comes from, on the Chaos Mother livestream, and it's really quite something. Extremely violent yet kind of beautiful, and of course, as epic as a legend can be. So, manly, swaggering storm gods. Again, think Thor and Zeus, who slay dragons or sea dragons to ascend to the throne. Is any of this ringing any bells yet in terms of a song of ice and fire? And yes, that's a battle of the bells joke, because I'm talking about Robert Baratheon, the drunken, swaggering storm lord who hails from Storm's End, and of course, won his throne and kingdom by slaying the dragon prince Rhaegar Targaryen in the River Trident. That's right, it's George's own version of the Chaos Conf myth. As is well known by now, Ned describes Robert as looking like a horned god when he dons his antlered helm and mounts his warhorse, such as he did when he slew Rhaegar, and his parallels to the drunken, hammer-wielding Thor and the drunken, lightning god Zeus have been obvious to pretty much everyone since people started analyzing A Song of Ice and Fire. The Canaanite Baal, whom I just mentioned, is actually sometimes depicted as a horned god, like Robert, 
And he's also seen as dying and resurrecting with the seasons like a Cernunos type European green man, horn fertility god. And of course, Robert is based on Garth the Green, who is a Song of Ice and Fire's version of Cernunos and the Green Man. The Canaanite Baal, or Baal Hadad is the longer form, also wields a club that spits lightning, which would be an obvious parallel to Thor's Mjolnir, and in turn, Robert's Warhammer. Now again, it's not just the fact that Robert is a storm lord slaying a dragon in a body of water, and not just the fact that Rhaegar's sigil bears a three-headed dragon, and remember, many of the Chaos Conf dragons are multi-headed dragons, but specifically, I'm keying in on the fact that Robert ascends to the kingship with this act, which is a hallmark of all the Chaos Conf dragon slayer myths. The storm god becomes the king of gods. Now, George has said many times that the names of his characters are tremendously important, so let's unpack Robert Baratheon. The house name Baratheon contains an allusion to God. The Latin word theos means God, and theon is the accusative singular form, which is used for an object. So, for example, Robert's hammer, or Thor's hammer, is a divine object of a storm god, so it's a wrathful theon. And, of course, Theon Greyjoy is becoming an instrument of Bran and the old gods, so you see how George is using this word. Now, going further, Bera, first half of Baratheon, is actually a Hebrew word, which means to create or shape by cutting out or carving, which very nicely complements the idea of Robert, the Storm Lord, carving out a kingdom for himself. Finally, the name Robert is of Germanic origin and means fame, glory, renown, or even fame bright, glory bright. Put it all together and you have Robert's name amounting to a god who wins fame and exaltation when he carves out a divine kingdom with an object that is like the wrath of the storm god incarnate, or something like that. And just so you know, many of the names in A Song of Ice and Fire do break down in detail like this, so I'm not just pulling things out of thin air here. Now, before we get to the Daenerys stuff, I will just quickly point out that there is one other obvious nod to the Chaos Conf myth in the A Song of Ice and Fire backstory, and that's the ancient ironborn legend of the Grey King slaying the sea dragon Naga. The one thing that's a little bit off here is that the Grey King is not a Storm Lord or Storm King, although in a different legend he does contest with the Storm God and steal his fire, which means you could think of Grey King as usurping or stealing the power of the Storm God, something like when Euron says, I am the Storm, despite the Ironborn fearing the Storm God as an evil god. I guess Euron likes evil gods. But apart from that one detail, it's pretty much a perfect Chaos Conf story. Naga is explicitly a sea dragon, and the Grey King is a god king, and supposedly the first king of the Ironborn. And the Grey King creates a long haul, throne, and crown from Naga's bones. It's not quite making the world out of the slain dragon, but it gives us both the idea of ascending to the kingship and making a place to live, at the very least, from the body of the slain sea dragon. So it's a pretty good match. All right, we've established that George is aware of the Chaos Conf mythology, and we see that it's applied to Danny's brother Rhaegar, whom Danny very much sees as a role model and a person whose shoes, or night black armor, she is stepping into. And saw her brother Rhaegar mounted on a stallion as black as his armor. Fire glimmered red through the narrow eye slit of his helm. The last dragon, Sir Jorah's voice whispered faintly. The last, the last. Danny lifted his polished black visor. The face within was her own. That was from Danny's Wake the Dragon Dream, which comes near the end of A Game of Thrones, one chapter before she wakes the dragons in Drogo's pyre. As you can see, Danny's own prophetic dreams have cast her in the mold of Rhaegar, 
as the heir to Rhaegar's mantle of the Last Dragon. And as the Last Dragon, and as the Mother of Dragons, and as the Great Mysa, you better believe that Danny is cast in the role of a divine dragon mother. In fact, we're about to see that the Chaos Conf mythology is found all throughout Danny's arc, both in terms of general themes and in terms of specific parallels to the Vedic Indian version of the Chaos Conf, which is the story of Indra and Varitra. All right, friends, it's time to play Name That Dragon. Yes, that's right, it's easy to play. I'll read descriptions of a dragon, and you tell me who it is. And I promise to stop using my game show voice right now. From the south side of the sacrificial fire came a fearful personality who looked like the destroyer of the entire creation. Tall and blackish, he appeared like a burnt hill and was as lustrous as a bright array of clouds in the evening. His eyes were piercing like the midday sun. He made the entire surface of the earth tremble as if from an earthquake. As he yawned again and again, he seemed to be trying to swallow the whole sky with his mouth, which was as deep as a cave. He seemed to be licking up all the stars in the sky with his tongue and eating the entire universe with his long, sharp teeth. Seeing this gigantic demon, everyone in great fear ran here and there in all directions. All right, it's a black dragon known for throwing the world into shadow and causing great dread who was born from a sacrificial fire. Do we have any guesses? Nope, it's not Drogon the Winged Shadow. And no, not even Beleriand the Black Dread, but Veritra the Enveloper. Those quotes were taken from the Mahabharata, which also says that very fearful demon, who was actually the son of Dvashta, covered all the planetary systems by dint of austerity. Therefore, he was named Varitra, or one who covers everything. One who covers everything and the enveloper are both translations of Varitra. And as you can see, he's threatening to eat up the entire universe. Similarly, the Rig Veda says that Varitra grows from the sacrificial fire in all directions until he had forced back the oceans and enveloped the worlds. Which is very similar to Jormungandr being thought of as encircling Midgard, which is more or less the world. Varitra is a dragon who has three heads, as I mentioned, specifically in the story where he's slain by the storm god Indra who has to cut off all three heads to win. Veritra sure does have the brimstone stink of House Targaryen about him, does he not? Check out this passage from A Game of Thrones, and notice that the dragons are named after gods. Aegon's dragons were named for the gods of old Valyria, she told her blood riders one morning after a long night's journey. Visenya's dragon was Vagar, Rhaenys had Meraxes, and Aegon rode Valerian, the Black Dread. It was said that Vagar's breath was so hot that it could melt a knight's armor and cook the man inside, that Meraxes swallowed horses whole, and Beleriand, his fire was as black as his scales, his wings so vast that whole towns were swallowed up in their shadow when he passed overhead. The Dothraki looked at her hatchlings uneasily. The largest of her three was shiny black, his scales slashed with streaks of vivid scarlet to match his wings and horns. Khaleesi, Ego murmured, there sits Beleriand, come again. It may be as you say, blood of my blood, Danny replied gravely, but he shall have a new name for this new life. Indeed, swallowing the world in shadow or enveloping it in darkness, you might say, is a trick that Drogon seems to have learned in his past life as Beleriand the Black Dread, such as in A Dance with Dragons, when it says of Drogon that 
The second time he passed before the sun, his black wings spread and the world darkened. The reason for using such hyperbolic language of darkening the entire world is to portray Drogon as a world-encircling dragon, like Veritra or Jormungandr. Alright, well, so far it sounds like Veritra, a three-headed black dragon who's kind of like a god and kind of like a demon, and who springs forth from a sacrificial fire, and who envelops the world in shadow and dread, just might be a, somewhat of a source of inspiration for House Targaryen and their black dragons. And that's before I tell you that Veritra's mother is named Danu. That's right, Danu. Might as well call her Danu Targaryen, mother of the three-headed dragon. The Vedic goddess Danu is a supreme mother goddess figure, the mother of the gods in some versions, who is strongly associated with rivers and bodies of water, and represents the exact primordial chaos ocean of creation concept that we're looking for. Danu actually appears to be derived from the older Proto-Indo-European religion, which was carried across the better part of two continents by the common PIE ancestors of cultures all the way from Vedic India to Celtic Ireland. According to PIEreligion.org, the name Danu of various forms is found in most Indo-European languages as a word for a river. Linguists generally reconstruct it as the PIE Dihanu, which means run or flow. And sorry if my Proto-Indo-European pronunciation is a little bit off. Now many river names in PIE descendant lands use this word, such as the River Danube in Europe or the River Danube in Nepal, which gives evidence to its universal use within Proto-Indo-European areas. Along the same lines, we find a watery mother goddess named Danu, not only in Vedic India, but all the way across the better part of two continents on the British Isles. And I'm talking about the Danu of Celtic folklore here. She's similarly known as a mother of the gods, like the Vedic Danu, and is similarly associated with water, rivers, and creation. The phrase Tuatha de Danand actually means the tribe of Danand or the children of Danand, with Danand being a form of Danu. And of course, we already know that the Tuatha and their accompanying Celtic mythology is a huge influence on A Song of Ice and Fire. All of which is to say that the idea of a great mother goddess named Danu is actually one of the world's very oldest conceptions of the primordial ocean of creation, right up there with Tiamat herself. And this is the mother of the three-headed dragon. I don't want to keep repeating myself, but how cool is that? Now, Vedic mythology, it must be said, is vast and complex, and there are many versions of everything. So, in this case, the tale of Veritra springing from the sacrificial fire is actually a later version of the story. I mean, one might wonder how a dragon can be both the child of the sea goddess, but also born from a fire, right? Well, these two ideas actually can harmonize if we treat them as concepts, which for the most part is how many Vedic deities are to be understood. Thinking in these less literal terms, we can understand the sacrificial fire as a means of channeling divine power from the primordial chaos realm to create the shadow dragon Veritra. I think this is exactly the right idea because the dragons in these chaos conf myths always appear as chaos given form. For example, in the Tiamat story, Tiamat simply shifts from being the ocean of chaos creation mother to the chaos dragon who comes from the ocean. While the seven-headed Lotan of Canaanite myth is sometimes a servant of the chaos ocean god Yam, but sometimes actually looks more like an incarnation of Yam himself. Jormungandr embodies chaos and lives in the ocean that encircles Midgard, so that's a similar concept as well. The dragon always emerges from the chaos ocean, in other words, but in this version of the Veritra story where he's born from a fire, the chaos ocean essentially is being channeled through the fire. 
This idea would essentially place Danu, the mother of Ritra, in the fire of Ritra's creation, very like Daenerys in the sacrificial fire which birthed her dragons. And even without that level of interpretation, we can simply say more broadly that Dany is the mother of three dragons, just as Danu is the mother of a three-headed dragon. And in both cases, the dragons emerge from a sacrificial fire to threaten the world. Of course, one of Danny's dragons born from the fire is the Green Ragel, who is named, quote, for her valiant brother who died on the green banks of the Trident, who of course was slain by a storm lord in classic chaos comp fashion, just like Veritra was. Another interesting place where Veritra mythology and some related ideas have influenced A Song of Ice and Fire is in the name and character of Azor Ahai who according to me is the very direct ancestor of Daenerys and all of the Valerians, which of course you can find out all about in my Great Empire of the Dawn videos. Veritra is what's known as an Ahi, which means serpent or dragon, except Veritra gets a capitalized Ahi, like he's the dragon, which he certainly is. That same word appears as Azi in Avestan, which is Old Persian, and that's closely related to Vedic Sanskrit because both languages actually share a recent common ancestor language which itself descended from Proto-Indo-European. So right there, we're pretty close, right? Azi and Ahi. Azi-Ahi sounds like Azor-Ahai already, and using those same terms, the Avesta, which is the holy book of Zoroastrianism, speaks of a villainous snake dragon man called Azi-Dahaka, whose Vedic equivalent is Ahi-Dasaka. Meanwhile, the Zoroastrian word for the holy fire of Ahura Mazda, who is the good god in their very dualistic religion, is Atar, or Azar. So, Azor Ahai basically sounds like Azar Ahi, which would be holy fire dragon. And overall, you can see that basically his name is cobbled together from all of these words, which refer to fire, dragons, demonic dragon villains, or even holy fire entities. And that pretty much paints a picture of Azor Ahai, doesn't it? Now, George has actually said that he drew inspiration from Zoroastrianism when fashioning Reloraism in particular. And the Reloras, of course, worship Azor Ahai and now see Danny as his reincarnation, as the fulfillment of the prophecy of his return. So this seems to fit pretty well. We can also clearly see that George drew from Danu and Veritra of Vedic mythology to create Daenerys and House Targaryen as a whole. And then it turns out that all of this is somewhat overlapping mythology and etymology rooted in dragon folklore. So I think it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and you thought George R. R. Martin made all this stuff up. Of course not. Instead, he's actually doing something much cooler and more ambitious by attempting to retell the world's oldest stories in his own setting with his own spin and commentary, and thereby placing a song of ice and fire in the grand literary tradition of symbolic storytelling, which has gone on since the beginning of time. I don't mean to sound grandiose, but it is pretty cool when you think about it. Well, it's certainly gotten very dragony around here. Let's see if we can turn up the goddess factor a little bit. So both the Vedic and Celtic Danu are water goddesses, and never doubt that Daenerys is too. Danny's very first scene in the whole story opens up with her being given a beautiful gown, one which was so smooth that it seemed to run through her fingers like water. Who else can wear a gown of flowing water but a water goddess, I ask you? Then when Danny emerges from her hot bath, which is her favorite ritual, it should be noted, her hair is like molten silver. And later in a Game of Thrones, after a different bath, it's a river of molten silver. Aha, now it all makes sense. 
You have to wear gowns made of water when your hair is a river, or else it's just a mess. And by the way, I tend to wear glasses like this when I do scripted video podcasts so you don't get the whole typewriter eyes thing that I just gave you on the last paragraph, just so you know. It's not just because I'm trying to be a cool guy. It actually just makes it a lot more relaxing and easy for me to do the whole thing. So you don't have to worry about trying to look in the middle and read to each side and, all right, that's Go enough behind fire. the scenes stuff. Now, when Danny sails the summer sea in a storm of swords, the sea dragon symbolism comes on thick, oh yes. First, Danny names her three ships after Aegon's three dragons, Balerion, Vagar, and Meraxes, then watches from the decks of her sea dragon ships as her actual dragons take turns dive-bombing into the ocean. That chapter then gives us an amusing diatribe about just how much Danny loves the sea, so check it out. The narrow sea was often stormy, and Danny had crossed it half a hundred times as a girl, running from one free city to the next, half a step of the usurper's hired knives. She loved the sea. She liked the sharp, salty smell of the air, the vastness of horizons bounded only by a vault of azure sky above. It made her feel small, but free as well. She liked the dolphins that sometimes swam along beside Balerion, slicing through the waves like silvery spears, and the flying fish they glimpsed now and again. She even liked the sailors, with all their songs and stories. Once on a voyage to Bravos, as she'd watched the crew wrestle down a great green sail in a rising gale, she had even thought how fine it would be to be a sailor. But when she had told her brother, Viserys had twisted her hair until she cried. You are the blood of the dragon, he had screamed at her. A dragon, not some smelly fish. She just loves the sea, you guys. She might be a fish, or maybe a sea dragon or maybe just a beautiful lady made of water. More important is the scene of Danny's birth, which she describes thusly in the very same chapter. No squall could frighten Danny, though. Daenerys Stormborn, she was called, for she had come howling into the world on distant Dragonstone as the greatest storm in the memory of Westeros howled outside, a storm so fierce that it ripped gargoyles from the castle walls and smashed her father's fleet to kindling. Aha, so Danny was literally born from a chaotic sea, a very chaotic sea, in fact. Of course, the Narrow Sea is actually the same sea where Durin God's Grief famously battled the storms sent by the gods. So it's definitely the realm of the storm god around here. In fact, with the furious storm actually tearing the stone dragons and gargoyles off of the dragon-shaped castle, and with the island itself being named after a dragon, it's a dragon stone, it's essentially another chaos conf myth scene, with the storm god attacking the dragon that's rising from the chaotic sea, which means it's also a mirror to her brother Rhaegar's battle with Robert in the River Trident. Dragonstone is also functioning as a symbol of the primordial mound of creation, which is another universal creation myth symbol often found in cosmogenic myths. In one version of the Egyptian creation myth, for example, the primordial mound rises from the chaos ocean, and then from this mound arises the sun, or sometimes a lotus that then gives birth to the sun. And in case you're wondering, yes, mound is intended as a female sexual symbol, because this is creation we're talking about. The cosmic ocean is seen as a womb, and the primordial mound is how things are born from that womb, the yoni of the goddess. Think of the black lake that the Dothraki call the womb of the world, from which the first horse and rider supposedly emerged. It has a giant, impossible to miss primordial creation mountain symbol right beside it, which is of course, the mother of mountains. A mother mound, if you will. 
We'll be visiting the womb of the world and the mother of mountains later in the video, but I just wanted to point out first that Dragonstone is a primordial creation mound rising from the Chaos Ocean, and from this mound is born Daenerys, future savior of the world, and dragon mother to everyone who wants to survive the long night. Plus, we've made more than our share of Lightbringer is a dick jokes around here, so it's high time we even things out a bit. Here in the Mother Goddess episode of Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Mound, mound, mound. Next, we come to the scene of Danny's rebirth, which also takes place in the sea, just not quite as literally. As Illyrio put it in A Dance with Dragons, Danny, quote, died on the Dothraki Sea, oh, excuse me, died on the Dothraki Sea and was reborn in blood and fire. It's my Illyria voice. So, reborn from the sea. And yes, that's very intentional wordplay there, as Azor High Reborn is prophesied to be reborn from the sea. The prophecy wasn't talking about Azor High being a merling, or even an ironborn devotee, but rather alluding to the centuries-old notion that chaos dragons come from the sea. Using the grass sea as a proxy for an actual sea, it's really just a sneaky way to have Dany fulfill that part of the Azor High prophecy. And of course, George has said many times that he enjoys doing just that very thing, fulfilling prophecies in unusual ways. Now, Dany is, of course, roaming around this great grass sea for the entire first book. And she did it riding on a horse with a silver mane and a coat as gray as a winter sea. So it's a seahorse for the grass sea, in other words. A fit mount for a sea goddess. Trust me, it's very intentional wordplay, and there's a lot more where that came from, which you can find in the Weirwood Compendium videos titled The Devil in the Deep Green Sea, Daenerys the Sea Dreamer, and A Silver Seahorse. Like, you won't believe how much more of this wordplay there is, and shout out to Ravenous Reader, of course. Now, just as Danny is reborn in the grass sea, Danny's dragons are also themselves born from the Great Grass Sea, which works as a mirror to Veritra and Tiamat and all the other dragons which come from the sea or act as avatars of the primordial sea. Going back to the paradox of Veritra, having been born from a sacrificial fire in one story, but somehow also having been the child of the sea goddess Danu, well, again, Danny's dragons hatched from a sacrificial fire in the Dothraki Sea. Even better, their mother, Dany, expresses both ideas. She's part symbolic sea goddess like Danu, but is also the avatar of Holy Fire, who is called the Bride of Fire, and who has the fire inside her when she hatches the dragons in the pyre. She's reborn in blood and fire, as Illyrio said, but also reborn from the sea. See, it's not that much of a paradox. Then later in A Dance with Dragons, Danny returns to the grass sea on Drogon's back, and she finds Drogon living in a cave atop a rocky hill in the grass sea, which she names Dragonstone. And just to make sure we're thinking of the grass sea as an actual sea, it says, the hill was a stony island in a sea of green. So it's another primordial mound rising from the sea from which dragons emerge. Dragons and dragon goddesses, anyway. Then at the end of that chapter, when she flies on Drogon's back again, it says, To the right and left, Danny glimpsed places where the grass was burned and ashen. Drogon has come this way before, she realized. Like a chain of gray islands, the marks of his hunting dotted the green grass sea. Look, more islands in the sea, and these were explicitly spelled out as being made by the dragon. Drogon made the islands by burning the grass, too, so it's creation through destruction which is, of course, part of the bigger theme of the Chaos Comp mythology. These direct parallels between the Dothraki Grass Sea and the seas that surround the real island of Dragonstone work to highlight Dany's water goddess status, showing us that in all ways she is 
born and reborn from the sea, makes her home in the sea, and so on. Finally, we can observe where things left off at the end of A Dance with Dragons, and see that Daenerys is set up to fashion a new Dothraki nation from the grass sea. So she's actually birthing all kinds of things from her ocean, as a creative mother goddess should. It seems likely that Danny will take command of the Dothraki nation at Vase Dothrak, where the womb of the world and the mother of mountains are. So we should expect more chaos conf and birthing symbolism there, which will probably mirror scenes like Danny's dragon birthing, or her climactic scenes with Drogon in Slaver's Bay, such as a Daznax pit and the freeing of the Unsullied. Friends, I think it would be hard-pressed to find any scene anywhere in fantasy fiction that is... Why, hello there, yes. It's a little bit of a longer video, and I just wanted to check in. Make sure you're still doing okay, make sure you're fresh. If you need to get up and stretch, get a glass of water, now's the time. The best is yet to come, so don't even think about checking out early. Oh no, don't do that, don't do that. Friends, I think it would be hard-pressed to find any scene anywhere in fantasy fiction that is more epic and awesome than Daenerys Targaryen climbing onto the funeral pyre of Khal Drogo, her husband, and not dying, but instead waking the dragons from stone and being reborn as the Khaleesi. Now, as it happens, this epic scene didn't come from nowhere. Oh no, it came from Vedic Hindu mythology. Surprise, surprise. That's right, there's an ancient Hindu custom, now outlawed, called Sati, where a grieving widow might choose to sacrifice herself by sitting atop her husband's funeral pyre and self-immolating in a display of devotion and grief. That practice is in turn based on the story of the goddess Sati, who immolated herself in a sacrificial pyre because she simply could not bear the humiliation of her father after she married Shiva against her father's wishes. And self-immolation was seen as a way to both protest and to protect hers and Shiva's honor. That's not the end of the story though, so take heart. Sati reincarnates as the goddess Parvati, who also becomes the wife of Shiva. And Shiva and Parvati are two of the most powerful and famous and most worshipped of all the Hindu deities. Parvati in particular is probably the most quintessentially mother goddess figure of all the Hindu deities, and can be described as the gentle and nurturing form of the supreme Hindu goddess Adi Parashakti. Sati herself was actually just a human incarnation of Adi Parashakti. So, when she walked into the pyre, it was really just a way of returning to her god form. She even got her beloved Shiva back, so it's a happy ending after all. Now, as to the not-so-gentle and nurturing form of the supreme goddess, Adi Parashakti slash Parvati, well, that, my friends, would be Kali, or sometimes Mahakali, or even another goddess named Durga, who was the Hindu war goddess. And ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you that Kali mythology is all over Danny's story. And actually, there's some Durga mythology tossed in there too. Just in case you haven't put it together on your own, Danny is the Kali Sea. And the wise women of the Dothraki are called the Dosh Kaleen. Kali. -n. Yes. It's like Sesame Street. Kali. -n. Kaleen. 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 Hey. <laughs> Who's Kaleen? So, as you can see, George kind of left that one right out in the open for us to find. So, Danny climbing on the pyre of her dead husband is essentially a perfect example of the Sati ritual. And like the original Sati, Danny is reborn in power and splendor, with her people now bowing down before her to acknowledge the miracle that she's wrought. 
As I mentioned, Sati's reincarnated form is Parvati, and as it turns out, Parvati is perhaps the perfect analog to Danny. Just have a look at how many of these aspects of Parvati Danny embodies as I read them to you. Parvati is associated with encouragement, reason, freedom, strength, as well as resistance, power, action, and redistributive justice. Her epithet Annapurna describes her ability to nourish and nurture, while her Mahakali form is the one she takes to destroy evil and protect. That's pretty much Danny's Slaver's Bay arc in a nutshell, isn't it? Destroying the wicked, bringing redistributive justice, helping the slaves to resist and throw off their masters, giving freedom, feeding and protecting people, and of course, showing incredible wisdom and strength in doing it all at the age of 16 or whatever it is. All in all, it's an incredibly close match. The closest match to Danny's character that I've found anywhere. So I'd have to say that Danny is Parvati. Now the idea of Parvati and Kali being two sides of the same goddess and of Danny reflecting them both is very similar to the overwhelming truth that leapt out at me as I reread all of Danny's chapters for the Who is the Real Daenerys videos. What is that truth? Well, just simply that there's actually no conflict between her motherly Mysa aspect and her fire and blood dragon aspect, as many believe there to be. Danny's dragon side only ever wakes when she needs to destroy evil people and protect the weak. It's actually very consistent through her entire arc, unlike the show. Danny is basically walking her talk where it regards the responsibility of those given the power to rule, which she expresses thusly in A Storm of Swords. Why do gods make kings and queens if not to protect the ones who can't protect themselves? You know who likes protecting the weak even more than good kings and queens? Mother goddesses, or any mother for that matter. Human mother, animal mother, mother nature. You don't mess with mama. I think everyone knows that. So here's how this works. Parvati's destructive aspects can take the form of Kali, as I mentioned, as well as the Hindu goddess of war, Durga. Daenerys is like Parvati, and her dragons, Drogon in particular, should be seen as her Kali aspect, as her righteous wrath incarnated into dragon form. In one tale, Parvati is incarnated as Durga to battle a fearsome buffalo demon called Mahishasura when she becomes so angry that her face turns dark and out of her forehead springs the monstrous Kali, clad in tiger skins and tongue lolling out thirsty for blood. The tiger skins part in particular makes me think of the costly and oft-mentioned tiger skins which were gifted to Danny. And more importantly, Kali wearing tiger skins is probably intended to make us think of Danny wearing the lion pelt. As a matter of fact, Durga often rides a lion, so the lion pelt could actually work as a reference to both Kali and Durga, as well as a very ancient Anatolian mother goddess that we'll have to discuss another time to name Sibylle, who is served by a priesthood of eunuchs. Sounds kind of like Danny and her Unsullied. Now, getting back to the story of Kali springing from Durga's forehead to do battle, it seems that Kali destroys not only the buffalo demon she's set against, but actually every demon in sight. Now, with that in mind, Kali emerging from Durga's forehead, check out this line from Danny's House of the Undying dream vision sequence. Faster and faster the visions came, one after the other, until it seemed as if the very air had come alive. Shadows whirled and danced inside a tent, boneless and terrible. A little girl ran barefoot toward a big house with a red door. Miri Maz Dur shrieked in the flames, a dragon bursting from her brow. 
Yikes, Mirimaz Dur or Mirimaz Durga? This is a sure sign that George knows the mythology here. And there's even a little line that says, Mirimaz Dur's voice was like a funeral dirge. As if George is trying to get our mouths to say, Durga. <laughs> even the Maz before Dur could be a Kali clue because Kali is often called Kali Ma or Ma Kali. And the same goes for Durga. She's called Ma Durga or Durga Ma. So Ma Durga, Maz Dur. Pretty close. This vision directly equates Drogon with Parvati's Kali aspect, just like I was saying. And this acts as another way of expressing the idea that Drogon is a dragon summoned from the primordial chaos energy that underlies the universe, which is, of course, a major part of what Kali represents. So, just when you think Drogon couldn't get any more fearsome, just like the three-headed dragon Baritra, Drogon is a pure incarnation of the realm of chaos, which exists beyond death. Spooker. The faceless men would probably just call Drogon another aspect of the many-faced god of death, in fact. Mirimaz Durga also channels Kali when she delivers Danny's lizard baby in the Tent of Dancing Shadows, a very important scene that we're gonna talk a lot about. Basically, everything about shadows dancing and the way magical darkness is used here is pure Kali mythology, more or less. So let me tell you a little more about Kali so we can appreciate what's going on in that tent when Danny's baby is fed to the darkness. So the key thing to understand here is that Kali is kind of the ultimate shadow. Kali means the black one and is always depicted with black or dark blue skin because the main thing she represents is that cosmic womb slash tomb idea which is the primordial chaos ocean. Kali is considered both the origin of all things, but also the devourer of all things, because she exists before and after everything else in the universe. Kali is also called Kala, which means the force of time, because time is created out of Kali. That's how freaking primordial she is. Also, shout out to one of my favorite artists, M.I.A., and her album, Kala. I'd like to read for you my favorite description of Kali, which comes from Sri Ramakrishna, a 19th century Bengali saint, yogi, and mystic. This is the one that really made it clear for me. My mother is the principle of consciousness. She is Akanda Satchidananda, indivisible reality, awareness, and bliss. The night sky between the stars is perfectly black. The waters of the ocean depths are the same. The infinite is always mysteriously dark. This inebriating darkness is my beloved Kali. A more lovely description of darkness does not exist, it's safe to say, and I hope that gets the point across. The blackness of the ocean below and the blackness of space above both represent the infinite chaos of what came before creation and what will be left after the destruction of the universe. Kali is this darkness, the cosmic womb and the cosmic tomb of the universe and all that lives. Now as for dancing, well, Kali is most often depicted dancing atop her husband Shiva. You see, after getting her bloodlust up to kill the buffalo demon and all the other demons, Kali just couldn't stop her rampage. It's not that simple, man. In order to save the world from being destroyed by Kali's wrath, Shiva then lay down beneath her feet, and when Kali saw that it was her husband Shiva that she was trampling, she stopped dancing, calmed down, and returned to her Parvati form. And the world was saved. By the way, the deeper concept being expressed here is the dance of matter and spirit. Shiva represents matter, which would be dead if not for the animating dance of spirit. 
So here's how we know for a rock-solid fact that George is definitely thinking about Kali when he talks about shadows dancing, especially in a magical sense. Another of Kali slash Parvati's epithets is Shaila, or Shailaja, which means daughter of the mountain. And the boat that fishes Davos out of the narrow sea after the Battle of the Blackwater is... Shyala's Dance. Davos, stranded on a tiny rocky spear in the sea and dying of thirst, actually calls out to a god right before Shyala's Dance shows up. Specifically, he called out to the mother. Mother Kali, it appears, was listening and danced her way to Davos's rescue. Davos was also in the room on Dragonstone when Patchface sang, the shadows come to dance, my lord. The shadows come to stay, my lord. <laughs> I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Which, you will note, took place right around the same time that Miri's shadows were dancing and getting ready to power Danny's dragon hatching. The red comet is visible overhead in both the patch face scene and the dragon birthing scene. So, in my mind, there's little doubt that Patchface was somehow detecting the birth of the dragons through the chaos realm that he does seem to have one foot in. Or maybe one and a half feet. He's pretty crazy. <laughs> Shadows coming to dance and stay probably also refers to the others, who in almost every way are symbolic opposites to the dragons. So, now that we understand Kali's shadow dancing a little better, and now that we've found George's, hey, y'all should really Google this clue about Shayala's dance, answering prayers to the mother to save people from the sea, we're ready to take a look at Miri Mazdur's sorcery in the Tent of Dancing Shadows. First off, Miri actually starts out doing a resurrection spell for a dying man, Drogo, but was then interrupted to midwife a birthing which perfectly demonstrates Kali's creator and destroyer principle at work. The death of baby Rego seems to have in turn helped awaken the dragons. Only death can pay for life, as Miri says, so there's actually a constant churn of creation and destruction happening here in the tent. One of the main techniques that Mirimaz Durga uses to channel the shadow magic that she learned in A Shy by the Shadow is, of course, through her dancing and singing. Before the ritual, Miri gave these words of warning, which really should have been followed, quite frankly. Once I begin to sing, no one must enter this tent. My song will wake powers old and dark. The dead will dance here this night. No living man must look on them. Again, this mirrors a Patchface rhyme. In A Dance with Dragons, Patches says, In the dark, the dead are dancing. And then he says, I know, I know, oh, 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 because well, that's what he always says. But again, the dead were dancing in the dark of the tent. So it seems like Patches knows what's up. Sir Jorah and Danny do both see and describe shadows dancing in the tent several times. And Miri explains in response that the grave casts long and dark shadows. That's when Danny has the horrific realization that her baby has been fed to the darkness. Yikes, what a line. Rego was effectively fed to the darkness of primordial chaos, to the cosmic womb tomb. But then he was, in a sense, reborn out of that darkness as the dragons, because it does seem like the three deaths who paid for the lives of the dragons were Miri Mazdor, Baby Rego, and Drogo. Kali's symbolism was also present right outside Mirimaz Durga's tent of dancing Shayalas in the form of Kotho, a blood rider trying to fight Sir Jorah and put a stop to the blood magic in the tent. First, I need to tell you that Kali's primary physical description gives her four arms, like Goro for Mortal Kombat, and has her holding one object in each hand, a scimitar, a trident, a severed head, and a skull cap to catch the blood from the head. 
The Dothraki Arek is essentially a kind of scimitar, a scythe sword, as it's called. And so now, here is Kotho outside the tent, fighting Ser Jorah. Kotho danced backward, Arak whirling around his head in a shining blur, flickering out like lightning as the night came on in a rush. Ser Jorah parried as best he could, but the slashes came so fast that it seemed to Danny that Kotho had four Araks and as many arms. The bowl to catch the blood is inside the tent. It's a tub, actually, filled with the blood of Drogo's slain stallion. But outside, we have a dancing, four-armed fighter with a curved sword. I think this is done mainly to get our attention, as opposed to suggesting Kotho is a mother goddess. Anyone familiar with the Kali statues might see someone with four arms and a curved sword while both dancing and fighting, and think, hey, wait a minute by which time they'd notice someone calling Danny Khaleesi. And then pretty soon they'd start a podcast and a YouTube channel. And that's how it happens, folks. Honest, it's a slippery slope. Now, before we move over to the womb of the world and the mother of mountains, let's visit a bleeding, sick, starved, and dehydrated Daenerys in the Dothraki Sea at the end of A Dance with Dragons again, where we find Danny again floating in a black sea of space and getting a visit from another Kali mother figure in Danny's Ark. As the moon rose above the grasslands, Danny slipped at last into a restless sleep. She dreamed. All her cares fell away from her, and all her pains as well, and she seemed to float upward into the sky. She was flying once again, spinning, laughing, dancing as the stars wheeled around her and whispered secrets in her ear. To go north, you must journey south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. To touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. Quave? Danny called. Where are you, Quave? Then she saw. Her mask is made of starlight. Remember who you are, Daenerys, the stars whispered in a woman's voice. The dragons know, do you? If the mask is made of starlight, well, that means Quave's face is made of the darkness between the stars. Ding, 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 ding. It's a dead ringer for Kali. Quave makes a lot of sense as channeling Kali energy here, I think. She's encouraging Danny to remember that, you know, for all her good intentions and ruling through compromise with the slave lords, you know, sometimes you just have to be the dragon and you have to destroy evil and embrace the dragon nature. And again, remember, these are all the things that Parvati represents in her Kali form. Redistributive justice, protecting her children, destroying evil. The divine mother goddess, but one who can channel her Kali form when the wicked needs smiting. I think that's pretty much the perfect encapsulation of Danny's role as a dragon mother goddess. All right, here we are at last. Come to base Dothrak, the womb of the world, and the mother of mountains. I've just shown you a couple of quotes where Danny is floating in space, or floating on a black sea that knew no shore. And in this next quote, Danny will immerse herself in the most literal version of this black sea symbol, which is of course the black lake known as the womb of the world. They rode to the lake the Dothraki called the womb of the world, surrounded by a fringe of reeds, its waters still and calm. A thousand thousand years ago, Chiqui told her, the first man had emerged from its depths, riding upon the back of the first horse. The procession waited on the grassy shore as Danny stripped and let her soiled clothing fall to the ground. Naked, she stepped gingerly into the water. 
Erie said the lake had no bottom, but Danny felt soft mud squishing between her toes as she pushed through the tall reeds. The moon floated on the still black waters, shattering and reforming as her ripples washed over it. Take notice of the fact that the moon's image is reflected and doubled on the black waters of the lake to effectively create that link between the sea above and sea below. It's important to realize that Danny is mirroring the moon here as she immerses herself in the pond along with the reflection of the moon. Never forget that Danny, inside of Song of Ice and Fire mythology, is first and foremost a moon goddess figure. As the mother of the dragons, she's a symbolic parallel to the legendary second moon, which cracked like an egg to give birth to dragons in the ancient past. That's the entire point of Caldrogo calling her moon of my life all through a Game of Thrones. One could even notice that the reflection of the moon on the waters would create the image of two moons, just like the origin of dragon's myth. And of course, it makes sense to give a nod to the creation myth of dragon kind, here as the mother of dragons bathes in the womb of the world. So here we have a moon shattering and reforming in the primordial black waters of the womb of the world which is a nice demonstration of how the cosmic womb-tomb principle works. Kali is both creator and destroyer, and that's exactly what the womb of the world is doing for the moon, as it shatters, breaking apart, but then reforms in its black waters. More importantly, the same action is happening with Daenerys, whose re-emergence from the waters, pregnant with her stallion son, reenacts the emergence of the very first Dothraki horse and rider. Daenerys is like the primordial mound, essentially, rising from the dark ocean, ready to give birth to the first race of beings. That's why she's naked in this scene, probably, and her and Drogo's active copulation, right after she emerges, essentially depicts them as the first gods who begin creation. Now, when Danny went into the lake, on the other hand, she was covered in the blood of the dead stallion, whose heart she ate to give strength to the stallion baby inside her. So again, it's womb-tomb imagery. The blood of a dead stallion goes into the lake, and a baby stallion, or at least an about-to-be-born baby stallion, comes out of the lake. It's actually double symbolism, because the strength of the blood of the dead stallion goes into Danny's womb, and the actual blood goes into the womb of the world. Why? Because Danny's womb mirrors the womb of the world. Because Danny is the mother goddess of a song of ice and fire. Now, as it happens, there's actually a perfect twin to this quote about the moon shattering and reforming in the lake, back over in the Tent of Dancing Shadows. After the horrific events of the Shadow Dance, Danny has been drifting in and out of a long sleep, and as she wakes, it says, the tent was drenched in shadow, still and close. Which is a great way to tell us that this tent is equivalent to the primordial chaos ocean, drenched in shadow, a sea of darkness, same idea. So this is yet another match to the womb of the world symbolism here. And indeed, when Danny goes back to sleep, her dream confirms that that's what we're talking about, the primordial chaos ocean. The tent grew dimmer and sleep took her again. This time she did not dream. She floated, serene and at peace, on a black sea that knew no shore. A black sea that has no shore is basically a perfect description of the infinite darkness of the primordial chaos ocean. 
And this is where Goddess Daenerys returns to rest and recuperate and gather strength, to reform after being shattered. Along the same lines, when she woke the first time, it says that it was as if her body had been torn to pieces and remade from the scraps. Just as the moon was shattering and reforming in the womb of the world, as Danny immersed herself there. It even says, the world swam dizzily as Danny wakes in the tent. Just so we know to think of all this on a titanic, universal scale, like a world-changing chaos conf event. So at this point, I think we can all see how consistently Martin is using the cosmic ocean symbol to depict the creation destruction cycle. And as you may recall, Danny and the moon are not the only ones we find re-emerging from the womb of the world. Beneath the mother of mountains, a line of naked crones crept from a great lake and knelt shivering before her, their gray heads bowed. Ten thousand slaves lifted blood-stained hands as she raced by on her silver, riding like the wind. Mother, they cried. Mother, mother. Those are the crones of the Dosh Kalin, of course. And as crones who are confined to living right by the womb of the world, they are symbolically living in the Chaos Realm, or you could say with one foot in the Chaos Realm. The Dosh Kalin are therefore embodying the death aspect of Kali, which is beyond life, outside of time. Thus, when they emerge from the womb lake in Danny's undying vision that we just quoted from, we can see them as being reborn into the world. And that makes perfect sense in the context of what I think we can expect to see from Danny in the winds of winter. The crones emerge from the womb with heads bowed. To their Khaleesi, presumably. And I believe Danny will indeed give them new purpose, likely changing the rules, confining them to Vase Dothrak as a part of the new Dothraki nation that she will create. The most logical way to make use of their expertise is actually spelled out right in the second line of the quote we just read. What about all those freed slaves and refugees in Slaver's Bay, and the general instability there which Danny needs to solve in order to free her to return to Westeros? I mean, don't the crones of the Dosh Kalin, who aren't all old women by any means, some of them may be as young as Danny, I mean, don't they make sense as part of the solution there in Slaver's Bay? Remember again, all of Parvati slash Kali's associations with redistributive justice, freedom, and when necessary, putting the smack down on the evildoers. The Dosh Kalin themselves specifically evoke Kali in the scene where Danny eats the horse heart. I'm sure that comes as no surprise to you. Unlike the show, the scene in the book doesn't just take place in a tent, but rather in a pit. And it's covered in the blood of the sacrificed stallion, which looks black by night. This honestly sounds more like a Kali scene from the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which of course had that incredibly violent and probably fairly racist scene with the Kali Ma idol and the priest ripping the guy's heart out and eating it. Yeah, there's a scene people of my age probably should never have watched as young children, but all of us did somehow. Yeah, talk about bad dreams, man. Anyway, the Dosh Kalin Cirrus has one black eye, which strikes me as a symbol of the Black Lake. And she uses that black eye to peer into the void to see the future. As the smoke ascended, the chanting died away, and the ancient crone closed her single eye, the better to peer into the future. The silence that fell was complete. Danny could hear the distant call of nightbirds, the hiss and crackle of the torches, the gentle lapping of water from the lake. The Dothraki stared at her with eyes of night, waiting. Aha! Uh -huh. All of the Dothraki have eyes of night. So it seems like the crones 
black eye is indeed a symbol of the infinite darkness that she is peering into. The Dosh Kaleen are essentially mother goddess avatars of the primordial chaos sea by which they live and rule, the ones who can see beyond the veil and perceive some part of that realm. The Dosh Kaleen indeed. By the way, the word Dosh only turns up a translation in Hindi that I could find. And the meaning of Dosh is mistake, blame, flaw, or fallacy, and other such synonyms. So what is George saying here? That confining the wise women to vase Dothrak to waste their lives is, well, a mistake? That it's like blaming them for the death of their calls? This could make sense, especially if Danny decides that forcing them to live out their lives in Vase Dothrak is in fact a mistake that needs rectifying. Then they can drop the Dosh and just be the Kaleen, which essentially sounds like a priesthood of Kali. And that's more or less the right idea. Hey there friends, it's post-production LML and I'm embarrassed to say that I missed the most obvious Kali wordplay of all. The word Kali-si breaks down to Kali Sea, as in the Sea of Kali, the primordial sea that Kali represents. So Danny being the Kali Sea means she's literally an avatar of the primordial chaos sea, which is basically what I've been saying 17 different ways, but I just thought I'd point that out. She's the Kali Sea, the Sea of Kali. Very nice. Yes, it was right there. On the tip of my nose, tip of my tongue. Just couldn't say it. Alright, now we come to the Mother of Mountains itself, which, as I mentioned, is a perfect symbol of the primordial mound, expressed as a feminine yoni. Only men are allowed to go there, as we learn in A Game of Thrones, which would seem to suggest a layer of fertility right when the men do ascend the Mother. Khaleesi, Koholo told her in Dothraki. Drogo, who is blood of my blood, commands me to tell you that he must ascend the Mother of Mountains this night to sacrifice to the gods for his safe return. Only men were allowed to set foot on the Mother, Danny knew. The Call's blood riders would go with him and return at dawn. Pyramids and sacred mountains are places where man can communicate with the gods, basically in cultures all around the world, for the simple fact that Climbing the mountain puts you up in the sky, where the gods are often thought to live. The Dothraki, as you probably remember, believe that their ancestors become the stars when they die. So they're forever galloping across the Sea of Stars, just as the Dothraki gallop across the Great Grass Sea. Drogo is essentially ascending to a place where he's closer to both his gods and his ancestors. That's why he has to go at night, you'll notice. So he's basically immersing himself in the cosmic sea above, and a perfect mirror to Danny, immersing herself in the womb of the world below. There's actually a line in Danny's undying vision which says, her silver was trotting through the grass to a darkling stream beneath a sea of stars, which is a quote I probably could have used earlier in the script. But the point is that everything about Danny's Dothraki arc essentially works to paint that picture of a sea above and a sea below. And therefore we're on pretty firm ground talking about Drogo ascending the mother mountain as immersing himself in the cosmic sea above. As I mentioned, there's potentially a layer of fertility rite going on here. Just as Drogo copulates with Danny when she emerges from the womb as an avatar of the goddess, Drogo is ascending, or you might say mounting, the mother of mountains, as if he were the god whose divine right it is to give his seed to the primordial mother, just as he did to Danny when she came out of the lake. Drogon, meanwhile, will be the stallion who mounts the world, which, in light of all this symbolism, well, let's just say it sounds more apocalyptic than sexy. 
but the implication is there. Now, kidding aside, I wouldn't be surprised to see Drogon ascend the Mother of Mountains too, like his namesake Drogo, but with Danny on his back. Breaking this taboo would be a powerful way for Danny to exert supremacy over the Khals and the previous order. Drogo does kind of work as a loose analog to Shiva, the divine consort of Parvati and Kali. In benevolent aspects, Shiva is depicted as an omniscient yogi who lives an ascetic life on Mount Kalesh. And while Drogo isn't a yogi or an ascetic, his going up the mountain here may be an echo of Shiva living on the mountain and communing with the gods or the universe or however you want to say it. In particular, when Sati wins Shiva's affections, it has the effect of causing him to re-enter the world which he had withdrawn from, and a lot is made of that fact. This could work as a parallel to Danny causing Drogo to decide to take the Dothraki across the sea to invade Westeros, when they had previously always remained in the Great Grass Sea and were afraid to cross the poison black water of the actual sea. Shiva is not just an ascetic, though. He does have a fierce, warlike side as well, and he's even known to destroy cities on occasion, such as in the story of Shiva as, and forgive my pronunciation here, Tripuran Taka, which also gives him a bow and arrow for what it's worth. Now that sounds a little more like Drogo, shooting a bow and arrow, riding horses, destroying cities. Meanwhile, one could even draw loose parallels between the Dothraki and the nomadic horse-centric cultures of the Proto-Indo-Europeans, since being nomadic horsemen was kind of their defining element and the key to their rapid and widespread dispersal. The Huns and the Mongols are more recent and better known nomadic horse peoples of the Eurasian steppe, who similarly rode their way to empire creation, but the PIE folks did it first. All right, well, let's uh, finish on a high note, shall we? A very high note, in fact, because standing atop the Great Pyramid of Marine makes Daenerys feel like a god. Danny broke her fast under the persimmon tree that grew in the terrace garden, watching her dragons chase each other around the apex of the Great Pyramid, where the huge bronze harpy once stood. Up here in her garden, Danny sometimes felt like a god, living atop the highest mountain in the world. Do all gods feel so lonely? Some must, surely. Danny then goes on to muse on the various theologies of the world and how the gods must feel. So the Lord of Harmony, well, he must be lonely because he's the only god of the Nathi pantheon, whereas R'hllor is thought of as being eternally at war with an opposing deity, the Great Other, which Danny doesn't think she'd like at all which is kind of funny since she'll be taking on the servants of the Great Other, most likely. And then finally she considers the seven gods of Westeros, who are all supposed to be aspects of one god, which she thinks is just confusing. <laughs> Have you given Vedic mythology a try, Danny? <laughs> In any case, the pyramid is by itself specifically a primordial mound symbol since the time of ancient Egypt. And the Great Pyramid of Marine sits right by the sea, completing the picture. Actually, the picture isn't complete until the primordial mound has something emerging from it, really. Drogon was perched up atop the pyramid in the place where the huge bronze harpy had stood before she had commanded it to be pulled down. He spread his wings and roared when he spied her. That's our Drogon, the stallion who mounts the pyramid. And doesn't this also seem like foreshadowing of Drogon flying to the pinnacle of the Mother of Mountains? 
as we were just speaking of. I'll put my toys down now. Drogon will be helping Danny to supplant the old order by doing so, just as he supplanted the harpy statue in Marine here on top of this pyramid. Man, I love me some Drogon. Now, as it turns out, so the Great Pyramid is actually kind of a mythology mashup. So far, we have strong Egyptian vibes, and the pyramid is also doing sort of a Mount Olympus-like thing here, with Danny living high above the world like the Olympian gods. But even more than that, we can see the Norse framework of the universe in evidence here, beginning with this quote. Viserion sensed her disquiet. The white dragon lay coiled around a pear tree, his head resting on his tail. When Danny passed, his eyes came open, two pools of molten gold. His horns were gold as well, and the scales that ran down his back from head to tail. As I mentioned, the Norse Jormungandr is thought of as laying in a world sea that encircles Midgard, and thus Yggdrasil, the cosmic world tree, which serves as the anchor of the nine realms of the Norse universe. Jormungandr is said to grasp his tail in his mouth, creating the Ouroboros, which stands for time and the infinite. It's very similar to how Kali represents the force of time and the infinite darkness of the ocean of chaos, isn't it? Accordingly, when Jormungandr finally releases his tail, it marks the beginning of the end of time, the beginning of Ragnarok. And that brings us to Viserion, whose eyes are pools of molten gold, implying him as a liquid dragon, and he's very conspicuously creating the Jormungandr Ouroboros around the pear tree. The fact that the tree is at the top of the pyramid seems like an obvious way to tell us that this is in fact a cosmic world tree symbol. And what about the two dragons chained up down in the dark beneath the pyramid? After all, Yggdrasil has a serpent slash dragon living amongst its roots as well, which would be the Nidhogger serpent, who is trapped in the roots now, but like Jormungandr, will be set loose to wreak havoc during Ragnarok. Say, didn't someone just set Regal and Viserion loose in time for the Battle of Marine? Rest in peace, Quentin Martell, the frog who jumped too high. Ribbit. I'm also pleased to say that there's a little Garden of Eden action here on top of the pyramid. That's right, and shout out to my Garden of Eden video, Eve Did Nothing Wrong, and the book I'm writing about the Garden of Eden, which is called Paradise Gained, Sacred Symbolism, Christianity, and Freedom from Dogma, which, by the way, you can join the mailing list in the link below the video. Please do that. Thank you. Anyway, this is actually the continuation of the scene where Viserion is making the Ouroboros around the tree. Viserion's tail lashed sideways, thumping the trunk of the tree so hard that a pair came tumbling down to land at Danny's feet. His wings unfolded, and he half flew, half hopped onto the parapet. He grows, she thought, as he launched himself into the sky. They are all three growing. Soon they will be large enough to bear my weight. Then she would fly as Aegon the Conqueror had flown, up and up, until Marine was so small that she could blot it out with her thumb. So, like I said, it's a serpent offering a beautiful woman a fruit from a cosmic world tree. Sure seems like an echo of Eden to me. I mentioned the pool atop the pyramid already, but there is in fact a huge garden and all sorts of lush greenery here, so it really does come off like a paradise garden of the gods here on top of the pyramid. Now, when Eve ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden, she gained the knowledge of good and evil, which made her wise and more like a god, in the words of Genesis. And here I think the godlike power attached to Viserion's pear that he knocked off the tree would probably be the power of dragon riding, which is exactly what Danny thinks of in the next couple sentences. The power to fly as Aegon the Conqueror did, high above the world, like a god. Not really sure what else the dragons could have to offer. I mean, that's 
kind of what they bring to the table. All right, there's one final goddess reference here atop the Pyramid of Marine, and that's the Greek goddess of love and beauty, Aphrodite. And sex, don't forget sex. Let's not clean things up too much here. If the Great Pyramid is like Olympus, then it makes sense that Danny would be Aphrodite, right? Although I do think George is hinting at Danny's warlike side by having Drogo call her Dan Ares' wife, which is an allusion to Ares, the Greek god of war. So it's kind of like the Kali Parvati duality, isn't it? Aphrodite and Ares. And of course, Ares is associated with Mars, the Red Wanderer, which is tied to Azor High through means of symbolism. Watch the Bloodstone Compendium, yada, yada, yada. So, Danny has just been notified of Dario's return to the city, and Missandei asks Daenerys what she wishes to wear when he's summoned to meet her atop the pyramid. Starlight and sea foam, Danny thought. A wisp of silk that leaves my left breast bare for Dario's delight. Now, according to the legend of Aphrodite that comes from Hesiod's Theogony, Cronus severed Oronos' genitals and threw them into the sea. And by the way, Oronos is the sky god. So picture balls falling from heaven and falling into the sea. That's what we're talking about here. Now his divine genitals fall into the sea and they form the godly sea foam. And from the sea foam, and yes, I think that's sort of another sexual illusion. We're supposed to understand what that means in any case. Out of the foam is born Aphrodite, whose name Hesiod interprets as foam-born. Now there's debate about that etymology these days, but this is the very well-known story about Aphrodite. The thing is that Aphrodite's legend is in part based on the planet Venus, and of course Aphrodite's Roman equivalent is Venus. And we here at the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast all know very well that the planet Venus appears to we on Earth as the brightest star in the sky, which either appears to rise from the horizon in the morning or set down into the horizon in the evening. It switches back and forth between the morning star and the even star. Again, check out the Bloodstone Compendium episode called Lucifer Means Lightbringer for more on that. Now what this means is that anyone living near the ocean might see Venus, the morning star, setting into the ocean, i.e. falling into the sea, or rising out of the sea at dawn, which is often how you'll see Aphrodite painted. Thus, starlight and sea foam is a direct reference to both parts of the Aphrodite myth. She's a falling star goddess who is reborn and arises from the sea foam. Once again, it is disappointed. Post-production LML forgot to point out the obvious here. Daenerys having a correlation to Aphrodite, which is the morning star, basically also equates her with Lightbringer because Lightbringer is synonymous with Lucifer, which is a word for the morning star. Lucifer means lightbringer. I should have known this. Should have pointed this out. Anyways, yes. Calling her Aphrodite is just another way of tying her to the morning star and thus to lightbringer. Uh, but it also puts emphasis on love, the love side of lightbringer, because of course Azor High is supposed to restore love to the world. Lots of bad things happen during the long night, so I do like that idea that Danny represents. A side of Lightbringer that is restoring love to the world, as a mother goddess should. There you go. Fire. And just to sort of put a bow on this entire thing, we'll pick up the last quote right where we left off, because when Dario comes to see Danny, we've got some familiar symbolism at play. Bring the gray linen gown with the pearls on the bodice. Oh, and my white lion's pelt. She always felt safer wrapped in Drogo's lion skin. 
Daenerys received the captain on her terrace, seated on a carved stone bench beneath a pear tree. A half-moon floated in the sky above the city, attended by a thousand stars. Aha, if the full moon is floating in the sky, then the sky must be a sea. And down below its moon goddess Daenerys, with her trademark lunar pearls. We've seen this symbolic setup before, haven't we? It's the same as at the womb of the world, where the moon's reflection shatters and reforms on the surface of the lake when Danny bathes in it. George actually creates a more specific match to that scene at the womb of the world with the fish-filled pool on top of the Great Pyramid when it says, Wind ripples chased each other across the surface of the little bathing pool and made the moon's reflection dance and shimmer. As you can see, it's yet more ocean above, ocean below symbolism. Basically, it follows Danny wherever she goes. In fact, there's also a link drawn to the new Dragonstone that Drogon made in the Dothraki Sea, because that Dragonstone also has a fish-filled, spring-fed pool atop of it. The new Dragonstone and the Great Pyramid of Marine are both primordial mound symbols, of course, and so we have different versions of the same ideas playing out at all of them. We're always going to see the Chaos Sea, dragons and mother goddesses rising from that primordial sea, we're going to see death and rebirth symbolism, and occasionally a fish-filled pond. And as you've seen today, a ton of this is drawn directly from Chaos Kampf mythology, Vedic Hindu mythology, and in general, from the very oldest mythology of all mankind, the Mother Goddess. Safe. The word made Danny's eyes fill up with tears. I want to keep you safe. But Sandy was only a child. With her, she felt as if she could be a child too. No one ever kept me safe when I was little. Well, Sir Willem did, but then he died, and Viserys, I want to protect you, but it's so hard to be strong. I don't always know what I should do. I must know, though. I am all they have. I am the queen, the, the mother, whispered Masande. Mother to dragons, Danny shivered. No, mother to us all. Masande hugged her tighter.